Jamie, your co-host Ben Davison, and we are at Melbourne Fringe Live. Joining me on stage is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, my wife and your friend, the always effervescent Van Batum. Hi! I'd just like to say this is a very normal thing that married couples do together. And we brought the aesthetics that you have, uh, if you're a listener of the show, come to know and love. Uh, apart from the, the dead rats in the roof of our shed with our beautiful paper tablecloth and sticky tape sign arrangement, please do feel free to engage. We will not be embarrassed by photographs on the internet. Absolutely. Now, if you are wondering why there are QR codes on your chairs, uh, and for those listening at home, why you don't have QR codes, we have audience participation tonight, Van. But not the awful kind involving a drama degree and pretending to be a tree. No. There are other places you can probably get that in this building tonight. That's right. Tonight, we are partnering with Civility and our good friend Peter Lewis to give you the opportunity, yes, opportunity to participate in the week on Wednesday live experience. So hit the heart button after you scan the QR code. Now if you're at home listening to this, you can drop comments wherever you've downloaded this podcast from. You can drop us a line on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or send us an email. Uh, we do try and read them. Uh, and of course, we will go to the questions throughout the night. The first one we want to ask people really is a bit of a warm-up question. How is life treating you under an Albanese government? So we'll get a bit of a vibe for that. So give people a minute or two to fill in that question. Um, and while we do that, Van, people might be wondering why you came out in a red cape and I'm wearing a red scarf. I mean, the first reason is because I own one and, and where else to wear it? But Ben and I have been wearing red in solidarity with the Teachers' Federation of New South Wales, who asked everybody to wear red today and put a photo of themselves on the internet. Uh, because doing so shows that you think they deserve more than thanks, which is the hashtag. So if you are wearing red, uh, wherever you are listening to this, whether you're here with us at the Victorian Trades Hall Council Common Rooms, at the Fringe Festival, or at home, or jogging, or walking the dog. Yes, you too can help to bring down the Perrottet Government of New South Wales by wearing red and suggesting that maybe public servants who perform a vital public service by teaching, you know, everybody's children should be paid adequately. I mean, I know that's crazy. We're obviously communists. Now, We've had some interesting uh, responses to how is life under an Albanese government. Refreshing, relieving, relief, hopeful, better than I expected. There's some really positive things here. This is going to make it really hard to be like negative and toxic. Yes, you know, although I'm sure as the conversation progresses, Ben and I will find something to be negative and toxic about. But this is, this is reading like an ad for a stomach comforting product. <laughs> privilege that one experiences in other parts of the world. Of course, you know, fascist adjacent, adjacent government in Italy, whatever the hell is going on in Sweden, and the United States of America driving that truck into the bin fire. Well, let's ask another question, because this one might split the room a little more. We want to know who is a union member. Now, the week on Wednesday audience knows we always encourage people to join their union. Wherever you are, whatever workplace you're in, being a union member is the best way to improve your wages and conditions and your safety at work. 
Now, while people in the audience here are filling that in, let us tell you about a shocking and egregious misuse of workplace power. Van, we spoke to the ETU in New South Wales today. We did. We spoke to the Electrical Trades Union in New South Wales, who are having an extraordinary time of it in Bomaderry. Bomaderry is on the south coast near beautiful Wollongong, my spiritual home. And 13 members of their ETU are finding themselves literally sitting on the grass because Manildra, which is one of Australia's largest agribusinesses, and, and Manildra make everything. They make cornstarch and flour and process non-gluten products. Uh, they're a huge exporter. They have decided to lock out 13 workers who were participating in an entirely legal and approved campaign of industrial action for better conditions of work. Yeah, that's right. These workers were only undertaking minor bans, so things like not answering the phone outside of work hours. There was no strike action whatsoever. They and none was planned either. They've been negotiating in good faith with the employer for 10 months. And they've been locked out. Uh, they are asking people to send photos and support to the ETU New South Wales on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, if you're listening at home or you're in the audience tonight, before you leave tonight, try and take a photo uh, and send them our solidarity because it is, they've been locked out. You know, the boss basically says, doesn't matter if you want to come to work, doesn't matter if you're prepared to work, we're not going to let you in the door, we're not going to pay you. Just another example of why we need to fix our broken workplace laws. Uh, now, some interesting poll results are up on the screen behind me here, Van. Well, they're very encouraging poll results, aren't they? Especially given the fact you are all literally trapped in a room at Trades Hall. There are, however, eight people who've said they've never been a union member in this room. Now, we're not going to ask you to identify yourselves. What we are going to ask you to do is what we always ask on the week on Wednesday. Which is, consider joining your union. You can go to www.australianunions.org.au slash wow the week on Wednesday, and you can join a union before the show is over. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> That's right. So if you're in the room and you're not a union member, you want to think about it, you know, talk to your friends. Most of the people in the room, they can tell you why it's good to be a union member. And at home, of course, you can join as well. One of the big issues on top of all of the workplace issues that unions have been uh, advocating for Van and campaigning hard on uh, is the issue of the stage three tax cuts. Now you and I have talked about this before, but we really seem to be getting towards the pointy end. The federal budget is only a couple of weeks away. We saw on insiders that this idea that they're definitely gonna happen, but the union movement has said they should be scrapped. We wanna know what people who listen to the week on Wednesday think. We wanna know, do you think they should just be waved through or do you think they should be scrapped? And the, the big argument to keep them seems to be this idea that if we don't have the Stage 3 tax cuts, that's a broken promise. Yeah, so the history of the Stage 3 tax cuts is that they were a promise made by the Morrison government. Remember that? Remember when we didn't feel refreshed and relieved and we woke up with that ongoing sense of dread and fear about what terrible thing they were going to do, some of which we didn't even know about it until Scott Morrison turned out to be Minister for Everything the entire time. Oh, what a time and what wonderful conversations we had with our therapists about it. <laughs> of course, the Morrison government uh, promised the tax cut, the new tax cut regime in 2019. They did go to the 2019 election on it. 
And as much as um, I would have preferred to forget the 2019 election ever happened, as I'm sure is the case with rather a lot of people sitting here tonight, they were elected and the Labor Party claimed that because a mandate had been given from the Australian people to pass those tax cuts, that they were, as a party that believes in democracy, uh, obliged to back them in. Now, my conscience is clear. I absolutely attack the Labor Party for doing this in the pages of The Guardian uh, when the wounds weren't even healed. In fact, I don't think the Band-Aids were even on at the time that I wrote that particular comment. But of course, we live in a very different world to the one that we lived in in 2019. A world before we were all locked in our houses as if we were doing time with a cat. <laughs> Well, because we were locked in our houses. Um, and, and the reality is that the stationary tax cuts, you know, we should talk a little bit about this. And if you're following along in the audience, and hopefully you are, because it's still fairly early in the show. Um, <laughs> but if you're following along, we do want to get your view. And we also want to know if you've ever broken a promise uh, and why you might have broken a promise. Because we think this is a promise worth breaking, don't we? We do think it's a promise worth breaking for lots of reasons. I do understand the logic of uh, an election that was fought on this issue. This promise was made very explicitly by Morrison and co. Um, unusually, it didn't amount to an enormous lie. So, I mean, that's one point for them, I guess. But the circumstances have certainly changed. We've had a global pandemic, which has played absolute havoc with the world economy, particularly with labour shortages in Australia, because we've changed our guest worker regimes. Um, also, we've got the effects of a oh, small land war in Europe where a genocidal tyrant is uh, into constantly interrupting the energy supply to Russia's Western European markets, which is putting enormous amounts of pressure on, uh, on prices. We have this situation where the oil producing nations have just decided that they are not going to lower the price of the fuel that is needed to heat Europe through winter. This will also have ramifications in the United States of America. I mean, these are very serious economic times and the situation is just completely different to those heady days of 2019 um, where we didn't know just how bad things would get. We also know that enormous amounts of debt and deficit, and I hate saying that because I sound like a Tory, were run up by the Tories themselves. I just want to cast everybody's mind back. Does everybody remember when Howard got elected? I mean, I understand it's traumatic and people may not want to revisit it. And for me, it involves the image of crying and lying face down on the ground, pleading, pleading with God to take me or make it untrue. But <laughs> we were told that Kim Beasley's $6 billion black hole, remember Beasley's black hole? Yeah. Six billion dollars. What's the current debt, Ben? Uh, it's on its way to a trillion dollars. It's on its way to a trillion dollars. That's Tory economic management for you, everybody. You feeling that trickle down? Are you swimming in that trickle down? <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about the numbers here because it is quite staggering what it really does. This, the stage three will abolish the 37% marginal tax bracket entirely uh, and lowers the 32.5% marginal tax rate to 30%. Now, what does that what does that mean? What does it do? Like, what is it? What's the impact of that? Well, the impact of that is 234, 243, I should say, 243 billion dollars in lost tax revenue over a decade. Now, you might think, well, Ben, Ben, I can use a tax cut. It's high cost of living. Yeah, true. I mean, I could also use things like universally available health care, maybe greater mental health support in the community, maybe 
paying those teachers those increases they so absolutely deserve. What about what about crazy bit of environmental uh, you know regeneration, bit of reforestation, bit of bit of research? I mean, we haven't really been big on the investment research in this country for the past decade. There are things to spend the money on that are in the national interest. And for me, this is what the question gets down to: What is in the national interest now? Is it the national interest to keep a promise from 2019 made by a government who were resoundingly kicked out, literally left, right and centre in the 2022 election? Or is it in the national interest to invest money that we otherwise would literally be giving to rich people on things like schools and hospitals and roads and forests and cleaning up the mess that we've made of the planet? What is the national interest here? Well... Absolutely, because the reality is 77% of these tax cuts will go to the richest 25% of Australians. Uh, they're also gender skewed. You will not be surprised to learn. Amazing. I am absolutely <laughs> flabbergasted by this news that a decision has been made that will structurally advantage men. Wow. Wow. In the first year, men will get $11.9 billion in tax cuts, women only $5.8 billion. But we all know that's because they leave the workforce to have children. Like, that's why. I mean, just $6 billion worth of leaving the workforce to have children. By the way, that is a complete myth. The gen pay gap kicks in when women are 15. And between 15 to 19, when they generally do not have children, they're already at around 11% disadvantage, by the way, high. And let's be really, really clear, because there are a number of increases that we need as a nation that are built in, baked in, to just keeping the same level of services that we have now. We're talking about increases in hospital spending. They've got to go up by 6%. Aged care spending has to go up by 5.5%. Even defence spending in this uncertain world is baked in at 4.4%, and the NDIS is forecast to increase by 12.1%. Now, these are all investments. Don't get me wrong. They all have a positive net impact in the long term of the budget. But in the short term, we've got to find the cash. And on top of that, because the Tories left us a trillion dollars worth of debt, guess how much our interest rates will go up by? Oh, tell us then, I know you want to. Interest payments on government debt will rise by 14% a year. So there's a lot of things we could be spending that money on. I just want to just acknowledge that everybody's come out on a rainy Wednesday night to listen to two socialists talk about macroeconomics, and I think that represents progress for Australia as a nation. Good on you. Let's see what the audience thinks about what the government should do with these tax cuts. Yeah, that's pretty overwhelming. So it's 56 to 4. We have some people not voting. That's okay. We respect your right to abstain. This is not the Australian compulsory voting system. But it is overwhelmingly more than, what is that, more than 12 or 15%, uh, more than 12 times? I don't know. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot more. 56 to 4. That is an overwhelming majority want to scrap the top, uh, want to scrap the tax cuts. And of course, then increasingly, I think Australians are coming to this view, right? Because there's some international evidence now that says this has got to change. Yeah, I'd like to point you to what used to be called Great Britain. Not quite so great anymore. What fun they've been having. So they have a new Prime Minister. You know, just in case anybody thought that Australia wasn't a, a trendsetter uh, in the geopolitical realm, they too have a, a recognise the advantage of churning over a Prime Minister 
every few minutes. And their new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, not elected by the people, but in fact elected by other Tories in her party. Well, that wasn't that fun. Yes, Liz Truss was elected, I said the words, and then the screaming began. <laughs> acknowledge that a white deer appeared in, I think, Cornwall recently and, and down the streets of a village and the police shot it. And uh, for anyone who's aware of certain tropes in British literature, tending to shoot white deers generally results in like the death of King Arthur or, you know, princesses falling out of towers. It's quite bad. So that happened recently. Then Liz Truss got elected. Then the Queen died. And now the economy has collapsed. And the economy in Britain is in terrible trouble because they are subject to these inflationary pressures. Their fuel bills have gone completely out of control. You're looking at British households needing to pay thousands of pounds in fuel bills so they don't freeze to death during winter. And Liz Truss is absolutely amazing. And of course, their economy is in trouble because they voted themselves into the poverty of Brexit. And cutting off export markets, businesses have collapsed. It is, it is not good. And of course, Liz Truss has announced this radical neoliberal manifesto to really get things moving in the, in the UK. And the, the prime, the jewel in the crown of this neoliberal fantasy that they have been advocating was, of course, uh, getting rid of the top marginal tax rate. So the richest in Britain used to be uh, charged a 45% tax rate. Their idea was to flatten this so anybody above £50,000 a year only paid 40%. The cost of this was in the absolute billions. And, of course, the British didn't have the money to pay for it. These were unfunded tax cuts that were proposed in their first mini-budget after Liz Trust became Prime Minister. What happened, Ben? How did that story end, apart from with a dead deer? Well, it, it ended quite badly. Uh, so the UK economy lost somewhere between 50 and 60 billion pounds. The uh, British pound dropped to almost parity with the US dollar for the first time to its lowest level in recorded history. Uh, thousands and thousands of people lost their homes and the Bank of England had to intervene to ensure that the pension system didn't collapse and is still intervening as we speak. They are talking about uh, winding that back now that Liz Truss has had to abandon this. But essentially the markets revolted against Liz Truss's own trickle-down, supposedly pro-market approach and said you cannot just burn money that you do not have because it will be inflationary, it will completely demolish the pound, uh, and it will mean that the, the value of what people can spend will diminish so radically that it will t overturn the economy. Um, we can't underline enough just the economic chaos unleashed on Britain in the wake of these announcements, which have now been wound back because the repercussions were so bad. People lost their homes overnight because they defaulted on mortgage payments because of the, the madness and exchange rates and inflationary pressures and costs of completely blowing out. Like, these are really serious. And we live, unfortunately, in the fourth decade of the active neoliberal experiment where actual free market zealots are running Western economies and people like Liz Trust and people 
like Scott Morrison and Co as well, with their insistence that if we just give more money to rich people, then everything will suddenly be all right. And we don't live in that reality. That is, however, the ideological framework that the tax cuts the stage three tax cuts are wedded to. They come from the same ideas. And Australians are right to fear what the consequences would be for us, part of the global economy, suffering inflationary pressures like everybody else, if those tax cuts are pursued. And of course, we're not the only ones, and neither is the audience here tonight, the only ones who think that breaking that particular promise is a good thing. Sarah McManus, leader of the Australian Trade Union Movement. Praise be upon her name. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> has said that UK has provided, and I quote, a precautionary tale of the effects of massive tax cuts for the rich during a period of high inflation. We shouldn't make the same mistakes. Good policy is having an open and honest national conversation about the problems we face and providing leadership to find the best solutions. The stage through tax cuts are, quote, grossly unfair. But it's not just Sally McManus, and this is what's really interesting. Various polls have suggested that more than 60% of Australians think these tax cuts are a bad idea. That's a reassuring sign. Isn't that a reassuring sign? But also, some very unexpected allies, Ben. Uh, well, and I use that word with maximum irony font in terms of allies, just, just preparing you. So... Victorian Liberal MP Russell Broadband. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Victorian Liberal MP Russell Broadband has said, when things change, we should change. The world has turned on its head since the tax cuts were introduced. So people like me don't need tax cuts. I mean, that, I have to say, is probably the most self-sacrificial thing I've ever heard of Liberal MP say. Yeah, it is, it is absolutely era-defining. And then, of course, Tasmanian Liberal uh, Bridget Archer. Bridget Archer, the MP currently winning most desperate to be liked by anyone in Tasmania, has come out and said... We've had a global pandemic. Things have changed. It seems sensible to me that policymakers should be making policy with an eye on the circumstances of the time. If the facts change from what you thought or expected them to be, it's okay for you to change your mind too. We maybe we need to go in another direction or find a path down the middle. Communism. <laughs> I, I do like it when people comment on our Facebook page, these full commos are so left wing. I think that's always yeah. good. And look, I think it's interesting because, of course, Peter Dutton went on Insiders and proceeded to make a big deal out of this, and the, the, this idea of a broken promise is such a fundamental, front-of-mind, uh, democratic principle, and, and there's a lot of speculation about, you know, why Labor lost last time, broken promise this and broken promise that. And I think, uh, I think it was Sean Kelly on Insiders who actually said, you know, people talk about the last Labor government's uh, being thrown out because they broke a promise and as though that's the only thing that those governments did that wasn't particularly functional in the uh, Rudd-Gillard-Rudd uh, years. I think maybe the dead giveaway is in the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd name itself that maybe it wasn't just about broken promises. Yeah, I think there's a little more to it than that. But I'm interested to know, ah, oh, here we go, we've got some... For those listening along at home, we've got some really juicy promises people have broken. Uh, some of them are not so juicy. I tell them everything I promise to keep secret. 
that's good. That's a good. That's a good parental relationship. You should always tell your mum everything, unless she's the problem. In which case, you should have a qualified professional present before you tell them what the problem is. Told my sister I'd be ready at 11 this morning, but only left the house at 11:45. Uh, not to eat all the pies. Uh, I promised to be at a hen's night. Uh, someone said I can't remember. I prom someone said I promised to get my son a skateboard when he turned eight. Totally broke it. Oh, that's a bit heartbreaking, actually. So uh, to buy a house by 35. That, that seems like the government broke promise to you. <laughs> Um, we were discussing, of course, the, the major promise that, that Ben broke me, and I, I know uh, we put forward this idea of this, like, perfect socialist relationship, but I was promised a trip to Thailand, and what did you deliver instead, Ben? I delivered a dash hound called Germanicus. So someone was having a bad day at work, and I quote, went to the pet store to calm down. I feel, like, I feel like that improved both our lives. It did, it did. A bit like scrapping the stage three tax cuts. It would. Scrapping the stage three tax cuts is definitely the adorable dash hound of the Thailand holiday promise paradigm. Now, for those of you who are still following along in the audience, and the chuckle suggests that's most of you, which is good news, um, we want to get a sense of who the villain of the week is. Now, we always like... Apart from the spectre of neoliberalism corrupting everything, that answer has already been covered yeah. in the show. You can't give that answer again. So, we're hoping to see some names. Here we go. We've got some names up here. Oh, Putin comes up a lot. There is a lot of Putin. There's a bit of Musk. Carbs. Carbs. <laughs> Susan Lay has a lot of S's in that name. Susan Lay? Uh, someone wrote, I don't listen to the podcast. Interesting choice. Thanks, thanks you for coming. You do now. Dutton, Dutton, it's the potato, Putin, Putin. All right. It's always the potato? <laughs> it's all, oh, oh, Dutton, I was just like, is that related to the carbs answer? I too find potatoes problematic. <laughs> Van, I, th I think I think we're going to have to, in true Putin style, just go with. Just announce who we want to be the villain, yeah. and just deem them the villain without evidence or anything like a democratic mandate or a genuine popular referenda. Yes, so it's been a big week in the war of Ukraine, as it has been since the war began in February. The war that was going to be over in three hours and then three days, and certainly keeps dragging on. It's been a big week because Elon Musk, a man who I'm not backward in, in coming forward and saying I think he's a Bond villain, a Bond villain, a Bond villain, he meets all of the criteria, including the smile Bond villain, has uh, decided that he is now going to intervene in the war in Ukraine in a somewhat less constructive way than he has previously. Musk, of course, has 4,000 satellites in the air, some extraordinary number of satellites, mm. and has provided, funded by the United States of America, we should be very clear on that, not out of his own sense of altruism, generosity, pacifism, nobility, or anything else. But Musk provided the Starlink internet system to Ukrainians so that Ukrainians would be able to have up-to-the-minute internet connection uh, wherever they were on the battlefield. But sadly, the Starlink connection has not been extended over the disputed territory of Crimea, which, by the way, is part of Ukraine, has always been part of Ukraine, voted 
by an overwhelming majority to be part of Ukraine in the 1991 referendum that made Ukraine as a post-Soviet republic. And yet, uh, Elon Musk has been claiming that, you know, Crimea is really something that should be given to Vladimir Putin, along with uh, the ter disputed territories of Donetsk and Luhansk, which are part of Ukraine and which Putin wants, Zaporizhia, uh, which Putin is currently shilling, despite claiming it's Russian territory, and Kurzon, where, of course, the most notable gains of the Ukrainian army in their current offensive have been made over the past month or so. It's extraordinary to think that uh, Elon Musk has just waded into this conversation in the manner one would expect of a distinguished expert on geopolitics, which is to run a Twitter poll on which bits of Ukraine we should give to the tyrant of Russia. Literally ran a Twitter poll asking if people accepted his peace plan of giving all of these territories to Russia in order to, and I quote, avert nuclear war. Well, there was an interesting piece of information that came out today. Uh, a man called Ian Bremner, who writes a um, who writes a newsletter, a geopolitics newsletter that's focused on what's happening in Eastern Europe. And when I say newsletter, this isn't some guy going, give me $5.99 for my sub stack, or you should read my poems on media, medium. Like, this is a guy who is supporting... Or contribute to our podcast. Or contribute to our podcast, which would be fantastic. Slash read on Wednesday. Yeah. We wouldn't hear without our supporters. We just want to make that very clear. But Ian Bremner has been releasing this newsletter to, like, to governments and to major corporations like it's not a cheapie of these are my thoughts. And he interviewed, uh, he claims, and there's a lot of reason to believe this, Elon Musk in Aspen, because that's where you would, you know, like in Aspen. When you're a Bond villain, you always want to be on a mountaintop. Yeah, you do, right? Or under the sea, which I personally think is a great place for Elon Musk. Or we could just give him Mars on the condition that he doesn't leave. In outer space, in outer space. In outer space, it doesn't matter if everyone thinks you're a Bond villain. However, Bremer claims that Elon Musk told him that he's been on the phone to Vladimir Putin and Putin's really convinced him that these are his red lines. And if the Ukrainians invade Crimea, which is their territory, uh, that that's when Putin will drop the bomb. And this is just extraordinary. Like, it is absolutely extraordinary to consider that Elon Musk, who, let's face it, builds a nice car, hooks up some nice satellites, can't quite get robots or the brain implants that he's been developed entirely right, but is just wading into the most complex, dangerous and fractious diplomatic negotiations currently taking place on the earth. He has come out and said, oh, he never had a, a discussion with Putin. In fact, he hasn't spoken to his buddy Vlad in 18 months. And I'm like, 18 months? You did have a chat to him 18 months, you admit that. So you, your friends, like your pals, you hang out, you share borscht, like what is going on? I think it's a couple goals, Putin and Musk, you know? Uh, Hanging out on the mountaintops, just seizing parts of other countries. Volodymyr Zelensky, literally one of my favourite uh, people, and a very good instruction as to why you probably should let your kids go to drama school. He, uh, he fought back with a poll, saying which uh, Elon Musk do you prefer, the one helping out Putin or the one who provided us with Starlink? And he got more votes in his poll against Musk than Musk got for Putin in his. But it is really shocking because it exists in a context of behaviour for Elon Musk, which is quite terrifying, Ben. 
Well, it is, it is terrifying because, I mean, this is a guy who has continuously put himself into, into debates that, where he has no expertise. Uh, he has tried to buy Twitter and then back out of the purchase of Twitter because, of course, he overvalued it. Then, of course, legal action was taken for him to see through the purchase of Twitter. Turns out the Saudi royal family is helping fund the purchase of Twitter. Is everybody feeling relaxed and comfortable about the guy who's making apologies for the genocidal tyrant of Russia being funded in taking over one of the world's most influential media corporations with Saudi money? How do we feel about that? Does that seem a bit Bond villainy to you, or am I just am I off on one? Because I will I will take feedback from the audience of this. Am I overreacting? <laughs> Overwhelming. For those at home, overwhelming response. Um, and of course, you know, the, the mythology of Elon Musk being self-made millionaire, although certainly we know he, he inherited quite a large sum of money from his family due to emerald mining in South Africa. Uh, and now, in, just in the last space of the last few days, you're talking about a guy who not only is putting forward a, a so-called peace plan that involves essentially giving Vladimir Putin just everything he wants, uh, he's also come out and said that he's estranged from his daughter because of communists. Yes, apparently communists are the reason why his daughter does not talk to him. And I'm like, if you think that, maybe the problem should be more obvious. And I feel like the problem is more obvious. I feel like the problem is clearly Elon Musk and his behaviour. It's clearly the way he views the world. This, of course, you know, people talk about Tesla uh, in really positive terms, and we understand why, because electric vehicles are an important part of the energy transition and getting to zero net carbon emissions. But we shouldn't forget that Elon Musk has a terrible record when it comes to workers' rights. Tesla has a terrible safety record in its plants. And, and this is a guy who now is cavorting with Vladimir Putin, who thinks communists are the reason why his daughter won't talk to him, who you know seems quite happy to cut the internet off to whole sections of the population when he thinks it's, it somehow gives him a geopolitical leg up. But he's also a free speech absolutist. I mean, this is what he said. And he said that when, once he gains ownership of Twitter, he will re reinstate Donald Trump. Uh, to Twitter and to the public discourse. All of the consequences that flow from that are apparently okay because it's about the free flow of ideas. I think it's quite clear, observing the political situation in the United States of America, no one is obstructing the flow of anybody's ideas. We're just trying to keep them off Twitter and that's fair enough. That's fair and reasonable management of an unbelievably influential and powerful media organisation. And the idea that Putin would be in the ear of the individual who is about to take ownership of Twitter, funded by the Saudis, is terrifying. And it gets to one of the other many limitations of the neoliberal paradigm. You know, that we're told to concentrate money into rich people and then prosperity will flow. Well, concentrating money and investment into Elon Musk, whether it's in a Starlink system or Neuralink or the robots that we're going to replace everybody's jobs, or even Tesla, means that we're actually outsourcing the democratic decision-making process away from the people and a broader, you know, multi-stakeholder discussion about what is best for us, what we want communities to look like, you know, how we want our, our countries to align on the geopolitical chessboard and electing representatives to carry majority interests and having a broader discussion to just one guy and what he thinks because he's rich. And Tesla is a really good 
example. Like I've ridden in a Tesla and look, they're awesome. Like electric vehicles are totally awesome. They are as smooth as the Silk Road. Going over the Captain Cook Bridge in a Tesla, can I just say, was my own personal triumph over the Southern Shire where I was raised. Like I, I felt fully in command of my environment. It's an illusion. Because part of the problem with the whole leaving it up to Elon Musk to solve the problems of the world is one, he believes he can solve the problems of the world and now interferes in everything. But also a lot of American urban designers and other urban designers around the world is like to get to net zero, to repair the damage of car culture, we have to move away from things like roads and understanding transport as being individualised and car-based. We have to look at mass transit. We've got to look at other ways that we can design cities. And as long as we are investing in Elon Musk to sell cars, we are not moving away from that model. Just as Elon Musk inventing a robot, and I wrote a piece about this, it's funny because I pitched a column to The Guardian this week about Putin and Musk, and I was like, I want to write a column about how Elon Musk is a supervillain. And they were like, you have literally published that twice. He keeps doing bad stuff. I mean, the stories don't run out. You know, Blofeld is in only one movie. Like, he does keep trying to control the world. But, I mean, and, but this is a problem. You know, this neoliberal fantasy that, you know, a guy who's good at one thing, like building a good electric car, is the person who we should turn to to solve any kind of uh, technological problem or environmental problem or geopolitical problem is absolute madness mm. because he only exists in his own self-interest. He is a pure distillation of capitalism. One of the things that has come out in the, the wake of the discussions between Musk and Putin alleged, denied by Elon Musk, who, by the way, did not correct the claim in this interview that he'd spoken to the Kremlin. He said he hadn't spoken to Putin in 18 months, but he didn't say he hadn't spoken to the Kremlin. But the issue is that he, he admitted the last time he had a chat with Vlad, it was about space and also the future of his own satellites floating around the planet. Like, is this a comprehensive, multi-stakeholder, democratic channel for improving human society and life? I'm not really feeling it, Ben. No, and I think it's interesting that our audience here tonight at the Fringe Festival, Fringe Melbourne, uh, 41 say Putin is worse than Musk. Uh, 11 say Musk is worse. And I think it's I think it's telling, right? Because Putin Putin clearly is worse. Putin is shelling civilians. He's shelling hospitals. He's he's enacting what is a very clear um, bad guy role. But but the the role that Musk plays in facilitating that, the the power that he gives to the image of somebody like Putin, I think shouldn't be underestimated either. So while it's really clear to us that, yes, the guy who is killing civilians and torturing them and unleashing literal hell on the people of Ukraine is very clearly a bad guy, what we have to get better at, I think, in our society is understanding that people who are seeking personal gain, who are leveraging the one thing that they're good at into a broad range of highly profitable, personally advantageous positions, they're not heroes. Elon Musk is not a hero. He can be a villain too. Uh, you don't have to shell a hospital to be a bad guy. You can just profit from your friend doing it. That makes you a bad guy too. That would be my view. 
And I think it is interesting, like there are these amazing uh, memes that go around on Twitter whenever Elon Musk comes up in conversation because he inserts himself in the conversation. Everybody remember that he was going to be the hero of the Thai cave rescue <laughs> and when somebody did actually risk their own life to save all of those children with no hope of reward, he referred to said individual as a pedo guy. <laughs> as if that was in any way an appropriate response. And then when he was sued for defamation, unfortunately successfully claimed in court that pedo guy is just something South Africans say, like it's just like a figure of speech. I mean, totally normal. I mean, that's, that's fine. And he's awful. But there's this meme that goes around about anything to do with Elon Musk and criticism and a, a person labelled um, weird guys on the internet throwing themselves between criticism and Elon Musk. And I'm going to personalise this because I, I mean, I receive some fantastic correspondence, as you can imagine, <laughs> on the basis of doing this show and on the basis of, of my column and my various appearances. And when Ben does his little dance, do your little dance. It's because Ben and I obviously have the same political views and share the same values. And yet, he doesn't get the correspondence I get. So he does his little dance of white male privilege. For those who can't see, it's all elbows, you don't move your feet, and you make sure you have no rhythm. Because this is the reality we live in. And yesterday, I published a column in The Guardian, which was about my mother, who is desperately unwell and is in the end of life. It was quite you know, a personal column for me to write about reconciling with death, especially in the spectre of you know, threatened nuclear war and the dangerous interventions of Elon Musk. And it was like four words in this article about my mother's illness. And an Elon Musk fanboy wrote me a 1,500-word letter all about how I was wrong about Elon Musk and not mentioning my mother at all. So, Michael, thank you for your correspondence. I took none of it on board, and I'm absolutely sworn to the destruction of everything you value. <laughs> have some good news. There is some good news. So I didn't get to go to Thailand because Ben bought a dog, but a few years ago we did go to Indonesia. Uh, being Australian, of course, we had the magnetic attraction to the beautiful island of Bali. And what did we discover there apart from dogs with tumours? That was very sad. The dogs with tumours was very sad, but almost as sad was the huge amount of plastic on the beaches and in the water as well around Bali. It, it was absolutely extraordinary. And where we stayed, they had had nets and people fishing plastic out of the nets. By the way, you may have heard us speak on this show before about our, our antipathy towards a chemical called PFAS, which is one of the forever chemicals. Uh, apparently, by the way, nobody panic, but rainwater is no longer safe to consume because of the PFAS content in it. Great. Um, but when we were in Bali, we had the exposure to plastic and thought that that was pretty awful and pretty terrifying. So the good news that reached us today, that the Indonesian government is investing a billion dollars in combating ocean plastic, is just fantastic news. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They've set themselves a target of reducing the amount of plastic that ends up in the ocean by 70% in the next three years, which is huge. But not only are they trying to prevent uh, plastic getting into the ocean, which of course is fundamental to fixing the problem. They've also put a bounty 
on plastic that's in the ocean already. This is amazing. So they're incentivizing the de-plastification of the ocean waters around Indonesia by paying workers in the fishing industry a bounty per, it's a four, for four kilos you receive, four kilos of plastic, you receive the equivalent of $10. Yeah, that's right, $10. And this isn't insignificant because this is literally more money you get for the same kilos of fish. So this is, it's an interesting uh, dynamic. I think it's a be interesting to see how it plays out. I, I haven't had a chance to really think about all the interplays here because uh, you know you don't necessarily want to move a whole culture into fishing plastic out of the ocean rather than fish. But at the same time, this is going to be a really positive immediate benefit for not just Indonesia but the world. So I think it's a really good news story. I hope to see this play out in a really positive way over the coming years. Uh, and certainly the Indonesian government, a billion dollar program, uh, I think will make a huge difference. Now finally we can do something about the tumor riddled dogs. Yeah, I think, I, I genuinely think the pollution of the environment and terrible things that happen to animals, I think causal links have been established. Probably interconnected. Probably interconnected. So I, I also think there's an opportunity here for Australia to look at a really proactive relationship because obviously we were part of the problem. We were tourists going to Bali. You know, we are part of that like globalisation of, uh, of pollution essentially that has contributed to that problem. And I think because places like Bali are so beloved of the Australian tourist imagination, Australia has an obligation to support Indonesian efforts around declassification. What an amazing time to be alive. Oh yeah, well, land war in Europe, economy's collapsing, and the oceans are saturated with plastic and don't drink the rainwater and the dogs have tumors. How's everyone feeling? Fun night at the fridge. Still, feel, still feeling good? Still feeling good? Uh, look, that's the end of the week on Wednesday live. Can you believe that we've gone through it so quickly? It has been the full 50 minutes. We want to thank Peter Lewis from Civility uh, for our audience engagement tool tonight. We want to thank all of you who've been in our audience here at Victorian Trades Hall in the common room. And we want to thank everybody who supports the show. Like, we're constantly amazed that a show that, you know, we hold together with sticky tape and printouts. Thank you, friend. Um, A show that overwhelmingly we do in our shed and the various states of of rat that we confront in there and the dog in the background and and the constant lo-fi ambiance that we encourage through our lack of professionalism. Um, But we're so grateful for the support and being part of a discourse and a conversation that actually challenges neoliberal shiblets and wants to talk to you about unions and wants to talk to other people about taxation rates and sexy macroeconomics on a Wednesday night. It's fantastic to think that we're part of this awesome community and I certainly encourage you all to meet one another and hang out and share values and realise you are not alone. Love you, I love you too. Bye. Bye. The Week on Wednesday is only made possible by the generous support of its cadre, Extend the Reach, and Buck a Week contributors. 
Our supporters are our cadre, Karina Barley at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona at Evergreen Vs, Giada at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, No Relation, Richard Sands, I'm Not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright at Leanne Shingles, Donna Chan- I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers at Kerry Nash 20. Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon at Katagal, Lauren Ash and Banjo, Matthew Hadley at, at Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins and Louise Watson, Red, White and Blue Lou. Our Extend the Reach supporters are Stuart Munn, Marky Mark, Vic M. Beat, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nichus, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Daniel, at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, at Ange Fennell, Annie Uren, at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Denning, Jodie A, not on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna, at K Knot, Love Your Work, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Hi Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vic, Vita W, Tanya George, Nadina Hannum, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Wickett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Bonegart, at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. You guys rock.